As the year draws to a close, we look back at some of the big issues of 2021. This interview was among the most popular business podcasts. Take a listen. Christo, lovely to have you on the program. Um, Bitcoin, I suppose now you, you probably think, goodness, if only I'd invested in Bitcoin rather than Steinhoff. Well, can you just imagine? I mean, well, that some would look, uh, Alec, yeah. Yeah, what a story. But uh, and, and you've been right in the middle of it. Before we go more in, into some more detail, yesterday's announcement that Steinhoff is going to settle legal claims. Can you unpack that for us and, and what it means for you? Well, uh, Alec, you know, the fact of the matter is after the implosion in December 2017, uh, it was only in April 2018, uh, some four months later, that Steinhoff acknowledged that there was fraud and accounting irregularities or whatever they called it. At that time, I issued summons for the money that I invested in Steinhoff, which was close to 60 billion rand. But... In issuing the summons, I wrote a letter to the company to say that on the face of it, there was no way that all the creditors and claimants could hope to recover 100 cents in the rand. And therefore, my proposal is that as soon as possible, uh, there should be an attempt to reach a settlement. Uh, In the event, uh, it took more than three years for other people to come to the same conclusion. During those three years, billions of rands were spent on uh, various uh, lawyers, auditors, etc., because people did not see the sense of reaching a settlement. So finally, at least, we are now at a point where hopefully a settlement will be reached. I, I know you like history, and uh, is it something like the Battle of Britain where Winston Churchill said it's not the end, but it could be the end of the beginning, or it's not the beginning of the uh, end, but it could be the end of the beginning, something where like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know, yeah, that's, as I recall it, uh, he said uh, uh, this is not the end, and it's not even uh, the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Yeah, is that uh, where we and are? I suppose... I, I think that would be a fair, uh, fair description of the state of play as far as Steinhoff is concerned. Krista, you're by far the biggest loser in the whole Steinhoff saga, but there are thousands and thousands of small investors who have also lost a lot of money that, um, on the, on the fraud. What do you suggest to them, given that they don't have your resources to do the legal battles that you are going to engage in? No, but uh, I think, Alec, if you look at what has happened, these smaller investors, they called market uh, participant claimants, MPCs, they've banded together in different uh, class action groupings, and they have, in fact, pursued their claims. And uh, although it will be modest payouts compared to their losses, uh, but that applies to all of us, uh, there will be uh, payouts to them. So I think people in that position have done what they could uh, in this unholy mess. Mm. You say modest payouts. Do you have any idea now of quantifying how much of that 60 billion rand you will be getting back? Uh, well, the, I think those numbers are now in the public domain, uh, and I will get 18.7 cents in the rand, uh, but, you know, also paid in, in different sort of currencies, if you will. But 
that will all be in the public domain if it is not already in the public domain. Other contractual claimants like myself get a higher payout up to 29 cents in the rand. Uh, That stems from the fact that I made substantial concessions in order to facilitate a settlement. And, uh, you know, I just made up my mind that, you know, philosophically, I was happy to settle for a certain amount and I'm not going to walk around uh, begrudging the fact that other people get more. It was all in an attempt to reach a settlement because it's in nobody's interest that uh, the company should go into liquidation. And as far as your mind is concerned, given what Marcus Yester did to you, have you settled that? Yeah, I've settled that, uh, like right at the beginning, you know, within the first week, I uh, made, a, you know, press interviews and I said, I had to look myself in the mirror. I saw 50 years of my work go up in smoke and I had to ask myself, how are you going to cope with it? And I decided on three principles. The first one is I don't mourn the loss of money. Money comes, money goes. Uh, and so I'm not mourning the loss of money. Number two, I count my blessings because if this fraud had gone on for another year or two, I was going to lose a lot more because, as you know, I was negotiating to sell some of my other assets into Steinhoff as well. It wasn't going to be a direct sale, but eventually it would probably have ended up there and I would have lost that as well. And the third decision I took was that I'm not going to become bitter about what had happened to me uh, because, you know, nobody has a time for people who walk around bemoaning their fate and becoming bitter at the sort of betrayal that I and many other people have experienced in Steinhoff. When you say the other assets, was, Stein, was uh, ShopRite likely to head yeah. into Steinhoff? Mm-hmm. No, not ShopRite itself, but my stake in ShopRite. There was a negotiated deal that through a process, uh, that stake would eventually end up in Steinhoff as well. But it's a long, complicated history. It's all recorded. Mm. Uh, but there was going to be an interim company called Star, which essentially uh, was Pepcor, which came from me and other shareholders. And that would become, you know, the really the dominant retail player on the continent of Africa. Uh, and the whole mess that uh, Jayandra Naidu has uh, got himself into with his Lancaster, I'm sure you've been following that as well. Is that likely to end badly too? I, I don't really want to comment on that, uh, uh, Alec. You know, I, I have some understanding of what it is all about. And uh, obviously... Uh, he's fighting his battle, and uh, as I say, I don't want to comment. It doesn't affect me at all, and, uh, you know, we will just have to sit and see what the outcome is. But you'd, you'd think that uh, you'd have a support group of some sort of uh, guys who were screwed by you <laughs> getting together, having tea and perhaps uh, swapping notes. You don't do that kind of thing. No, I don't. Although, you know, that would, it wouldn't be true for me to say that I haven't spoken to other people who had, who'd also suffered substantial losses and some of them who had, in fact, become very bitter about it. Uh, yeah, you know, we sat and say, you know, how is it possible 
that this guy could have taken so many of us for such a ride. But then, as I've said often, Alec, in the press, that you've got to remember that these fraudsters managed to get through all the gatekeepers for a decade and more, getting through the internal auditors in Steinhoff, getting through the various audit committees, getting through the uh, main board audit committee, getting through the regulators, getting through the external auditors, getting through the ratings agencies. I mean, you know as well as I do that the ratings agencies look everywhere. They analyze everything to death. The bankers who lent Steinhoff tens of billions of rands, they got through all these gatekeepers. And quite frankly, what, what gets me very annoyed is that people say, no, no, but Christo, you should have known. Mm. I mean, how should I have known? Yeah. Then this constant reference to, you know, you also did it, the ex-chairman of Steinhoff, which is factually correct. But for God's sake, I was, I was chairman of Steinhoff for 16 months. I was chairman of ShopRite for 40 years and chairman of PEPCOR for 40 years. I was chairman of the IDC for nine years. But I am now the chairman of Steinhoff. It's just, it, it's crazy how the world works. But yeah. I guess people like to like to point fingers at someone and try and try and find blame somewhere. But as far yeah. as the stalwarts are concerned, you think of Yanni Mouton, who had a brilliant career. Absolutely. Uh, and, and and he didn't see anything. In fact, he was probably closer to Marcus Yosser than you were. Far closer. He served on that board, if memory serves, for more than a decade. And But just look at the luminaries who, over the period, served on that board. I mean, I said in Parliament, there's hardly another company board that had the same quality of luminaries serving on the board. There wasn't a single company that I'm aware of, of which the main audit committee consisted of three people who held doctorates in accounting. Yeah. I mean, those are the facts. Those are the facts. What do you, I'm sure you've, you've, Mold this over in your head many, many times. What have you learned that you can share with the rest of us that we need to be waving flags when we see another Yuster coming along? Is there anything that we should almost have you on our know, checklist? You know, Alec, I often obviously debate with friends and I say, what is it that I should have done that I didn't do? Because I explain to people I first invested in Steinhoff in 2012-13 when I sold Landsrack to what I thought was a consortium of headed by Uister. And the offer was that I would be paid for the estate in Steinhoff shares. Then Uister came with a proposal, a very clever proposal, uh, to switch my PSG shares into Steinhoff. And here is the enigma. He also put his, he had more PSG shares than I had. He also put his shares into Steinhoff, which at that stage was worth over a billion rand, a billion and a quarter, if I remember correctly. That's how I got involved. I then accepted a board appointment, and I sat there for, for three years watching how the company was run, 
uh, what their level of expertise was, how well they complied with all the regulatory authorities, how up to speed they were with stock exchanges, etc., etc. And everything looked perfectly in order. As I say, including the fact that Steinhoff kept getting an investment grade rating from the ratings agencies. So I say to myself, what more could I have done? Uh, and the answer is, quite simply, I don't know. Terrible as it may sound. But this lesson I have learned. If the CEO in a business himself is the main fraudster and the mastermind, you have no chance. I don't know what must happen uh, to prick the bubble. Wow. I simply don't. Have you had any contact with uh, Marcus Joester subsequent oh, to that? Last, no, the last time I spoke to him was on December 5th, the day of the fatal board meeting where I had to advise the board what had happened, having become aware of it only four days prior or five days prior to the meeting, uh, because Joester the previous night sent me a message with a lawyer to say that he's offering his resignation and I must decide whether I want to accept it. So I put it to the board of Steinhoff. I said, this is what had happened. This is now what appears to have happened. And Eustace has offered his resignation. My advice is that we don't accept it, that I call him and get him to come back and to help the people sort out the mess. Because we, we kind of, nobody knows where to start looking now. And I phoned him and he said to me that he will be at the office within two to three hours and he's going to help. That was the last to this day that I heard of him. So no SMSs, no WhatsApps? No, nothing. Mm. No, nothing. It, it just, and I'd like our, our guest co-host tonight, Magnus Haystick, to, to come into the conversation in a moment. But just one final little point here. After the fact, Johan Rupert and... Um, Whitey Besson both said that they saw that this guy was was smelly. Um, was there anything that they saw that we, and I say we because ninety nine point nine percent of South Africans uh, were were taken in? Yeah, I I think Alec. No, the the one thing is I know that Rupert and Eustace did not like each other. Uh, you know, they they clearly were not uh, on good terms. Whitey is the only guy who very strongly said to me that he doesn't like Eustace. Uh, and, you know, he expressed his views very strongly. But, sorry, it's rather like, you know, the Craig Butters story that regularly comes up. Butters spoke to me in 2009 and said that there were things in the Steinhoff accounts that bothered him. Now, I took note of it. And as I say, when I eventually went on the board, I tried to look at these things to try to make sense of it. But I saw nothing. And something that, that I pointed out, this is something that is important to remember. You will recall that in December 2015, as Steinhoff was about to be listed in Frankfurt, there was a raid by the tax authorities in Oldenburg in Germany. And they made certain very serious uh, allegations 
The board of Steinhoff immediately appointed a major forensics investigation firm in Germany called FGS. They're a firm of some 160 partners and 300-odd professionals, lawyers, accountants, company law experts, etc., etc., with a brief to look at every one of the allegations made by the Oldenburg prosecutor, and they, until the last day, until December 5th, had sent reports that all was in order. There was no sign of fraud or accounting irregularities or tax shenanigans. Nothing at all. Credible. Uh, Magnus, I'm sure that uh, you've got something you'd like to ask Mr. Visa. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, very nice talking to Mr. Visa. I have never had the privilege of speaking to Mr. Visa after being in financial journalism for 40 years. So very oh, nice well, I'm happy, happy to meet you over the telephone and happy to be speaking to you. Your, your words when you started this interview was, must, must be one of the most honest and compelling words from someone who has gone through, uh, I would imagine, very, very deep personal waters and having casually admitted that I've lost 50 or 60 billion rand, and you said within a week you kind of made it up with yourself that, you know, it's only money and I have to move on and I will not let bitterness rule my life for the rest of my life. And I think that's, that is an incredibly powerful message that you've got across on the radio show today. So extremely well done on that. Where do you think, uh, I've got one or two questions, and one, one question relates to something that happened more than 40 years ago, but I'll get to that in a second. Where do you think this, this whole saga will end? Will certain people end up going to jail? I, I sincerely hope so. I think the pointers are very clear that there, there was a group of people who had been conducting this fraud, my own reading of it. You must remember the PwC report only goes back to 2009. But my own reading is that this fraud started long before that. Uh, it was carefully planned and constructed, and uh, there is no way that, that I can imagine as a failed lawyer that those people will not be brought to book. But having said that, one has to understand, as I said to you earlier, look at all the gatekeepers that they got through, that therefore clearly the fraud must be extremely complicated. I made the point in the press two weeks ago that people uh, accuse our NPA of incompetence because they haven't yet arrested anybody. The fact of the matter is that the German authorities in Oldenburg started their investigation in 2015, and they have only a week or two ago have they submitted a report to the court in Germany to decide who to prosecute. These things clearly are hugely complicated. I mean, how did they manage to get away with it for, a, for more than a decade if it was simple? My second question, Mr. Visa, goes back to the days of a diamond company called Octa Diamond and That's a man called Johan, Johan de Villiers. Who, Johan de Villiers, uh, yes. was, it, 
was at school with me and I witnessed uh, the rise of Johan de Villiers and Okta and your involvement in Okta and that you stepped away with some profit and, and Johan de Villiers at one stage was worth 300 million rand and two Absolutely. years later was worth, was worth zero. And I've always said yeah. if I have the opportunity to talk to you, I'd like to hear your story about Okta, the rise and fall of Johan de Villiers which was almost yeah. uh, the equivalent of uh, uh, Marcus Joester today. If you don't mind uh, yeah, just giving full in Yeah, except that, that as far as Johan de Villiers was concerned, there was no fraud or irregularities or wrongdoing. Uh, it was simply a business plan that didn't work. Uh, Johan won't mind. We're still friends, although he's now been living in the United States for 40 years. But I often tell people that I have known a lot of people in my life who made money and started with nothing. Johan de Villiers is the only person I know who went to bed a de facto insolvent and woke up the next morning a multimillionaire because of the deal that we did in buying that diamond mine. He was 22 years old, and I you know, was his partner for four years. Then I decided for my own reasons that I wanted to get out of the diamond business then. Uh, he was, everything was going very well and he bought out my share and things were, as you say, he was considered in those days at one stage to be worth 300 million rand. And people forget that 300 million rand in those days was more than 300 million US dollars. And he was still under the age of 30. So he, he tackled a number of ventures. The diamond market took a, a serious downturn. And the rest is history. He lost everything. Is he doing okay now in the U.S., Christo? Yeah, he's doing okay. But, you know, he's now, uh, he must now be uh, 24, 46. He must now be close to 70. I he, guess. He was 67 years old because we were at school together. <laughs> <laughs> you were at school together. Sorry, uh, that's, sorry. Exactly, that's exactly how I had the story. He was worth yeah. 300 million at the age of 30. And then and, yeah. and two years later, he, he, he sold it to the Ruperts for, well, he, he walked away. He, he received nothing. He walked away. You know, here, here is an interesting, another little statistic. At that stage, when I sold to him, which was 1980-81, I bought control of what was then known as Pep Stores, which listed company, which subsequently uh, became Pep Core. Now, Pep Core at the time that I did the Steinhoff deal was valued at 60 billion rand. The market capitalization, sorry, of Pep Stores, the predecessor, at that time was 80 million rand. So that's just to put for you in context. If Johan de Villiers had sold the mine after he bought my 50% for an offer that he had out of Australia and he bought PIP and he built it the way we built it over the following decades, he would have been worth 60 billion. There's got to be a book in there somewhere, Christo. Are you thinking about it? Book. <laughs> that that. That story about the Okta diamond mine and the rise and fall uh, is a fascinating story. It's it's movie stuff. But the book about your life? Yeah. Is it coming? People have often asked me, and, you know, here was my reply, Alec. 
if you write a book about your life, there's no point unless you tell the truth. And if I have to tell the stark truth, then I will embarrass an awful lot of people, including myself. I've, I've got to ask you to share the story about the uber truths. What's the difference between the normal truth and the uber truths? Now, here is the difference. When you study law, you are taught that the definition of the truth is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But then there is a fourth element. That is an uber-truth. That is something that is so true and so well known as the truth that you don't have to ever express it. I mean, why should I tell you that the sun rises in the east? It is an uber-truth. And where people go wrong, politicians mainly, is they say something sometime, forgetting that what and expressing an uber-truth, not realizing that what they are saying is not necessarily what the other person is hearing. We all make that mistake. I, I, just before we let you go, and thank you, you've uh, you've done amazingly well with your croaky voice, uh, which didn't, which has come across great. I hope it didn't come across too croaky. Not at all, not at all. But the whole Brait story. It's almost yeah. like you were you were given a punch in the stomach from Steinhoff, and then a roundhouse came in another company that you'd built. And I was just looking at the share price from in the last yep. five years has gone down 98.5%, even with Absolutely. the recent improvement. What, what happened there, Christine? What have you learned from that, that story? Very simple. I mean, that, that I can answer very simple. But about the punch in the stomach, Alec, I often tell people that somebody told me that Buddhists believe that in your life you've given a chunk of good luck and then a chunk of bad luck. And if you are not spineless, when the bad luck chunk comes, you put your nose to the grindstone and you start working through it, hopefully until the good luck comes again, as it will. Now, I like that. I like that. That'll, that'll get punch, a lot of us through some difficult times for sure. Nice yeah, one. I hope it does. The punch in the stomach, if you analyze it, in April 2018, that is four months after Steinhoff, the ShopRite share price was 280 rand a share. My shareholding then worth north of 20 billion. The ShopRite share price, and ShopRite is an outstanding company. It is a brilliant company. That share price in 2019, 20, yeah, 2019 went to below 100. My paper loss from 20 billion came from 20 billion to 6 billion. There was 14 billion gone. Breit at one stage traded at a 30% premium to net asset value. It was clearly hopelessly overvalued. What happened with Breit? It bought assets, brilliant assets. If you analyze it, the one asset was New Look, virtually wiped out by Brexit over which Breit had no control. You are aware of the that the high street in England had been decimated. Philip Green's empire, which was valued in 2015-16 at three and a half billion pounds, went bust in December, worth nothing. Three and a half billion pounds gone. That same Beto hit Breit in terms of new look. Virgin, which is a fantastic company, lockdown. 
COVID. Who could have foreseen it? Suddenly, you have a year in which you can't open the gyms. We had to battle through that. And and so the list goes on. So I took a hell of a knock in the rate share price. The value is there, and I'm hoping that it'll come back. There are very good people working with me, and we're building it. And please, God, it will come back. Another one, brilliant little company, Invicta. The share price six months ago was at four rand from a high of 80 rand. In six months, it had gone from four rand to 21 rand. And it's on its way, and the value is there, and it will again be, it is a great company, but it will again hopefully do great things. Not because of me, but because of the people who are in it. Christo, thank you for joining us tonight on the Biz News Power Hour. Pleasure. For sharing, sharing wonderful stories and, uh, and lots of insights as well. We look forward to speaking with you again, uh, particularly when, 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 uh, when perhaps the Germans have come to South Africa and picked up Marcus Joester and taken him off there yeah. to put him in behind bars. Do you think that could ever happen, just to close with? Well, I, I don't know. My suspicion would be that, uh, you know, these prosecuting authorities, no doubt, will be cooperating with each other. They will have some kind of game plan. Uh, I can't imagine that the Germans, when they do decide to issue the arrest warrant, and just so that you understand how it works in Germany, as it was told to me, it's like the American system where you have a grand jury who issues an indictment, and then the prosecutor decides to prosecute. They've now gone through that first phase, and it's now up to some sort of court to decide whether they are now starting the prosecution. But I, I can't see them going to the hassle of applying for an extradition of whoever uh, is named um, because I'm sure they are well aware that a prosecution in South Africa will come. And that's just a much simpler and more direct way. But, uh, you know, I, I have no inside knowledge of how that's going to play out. As you, as you self-deprecatingly said, a failed lawyer. <laughs> but you yeah, do know the well, law more than the rest of us.